If you have your Bible with you, would you please open it to the Gospel according to John, chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one. They're in these black chair pockets. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to just keep that one. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. So we're towards the back now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 13. If you're using one of the black Bibles, that's on page 770. And in the gold Bibles, that's page 525. And you're going to want that open in front of you this morning. Please follow along as I read. I'm going to read most of the chapter. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him 
buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the incredible privilege of having your words that we can read, that we can meditate on, that we can just fill our minds with and consider. Thank you that you have not left us wondering what you're like and what you want for us, what you want from us, but that you have made yourself known in this book. And we thank you This is just such a beautiful passage. Reveals your son to us in such wonderful ways. And we just, we don't want to miss it this morning. God, I don't want to miss it. I want you to come and speak to us about your son and about the life of following him. And so we pray, Father, that you would, that you would come and that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of you know that my wife recently had a little baby girl, Elizabeth, And so since Elizabeth was born, I have been doing more of the school drop-offs for our boys. And so uh, Joshua is six. Joshua's been doing this school thing for a while. So when I take Joshua to school, he doesn't need much instruction. I just give him a hug, say, I love you, give him a kiss, and, and then send him into his class. But Asher is four. This is his first year of school, and he's still getting a feel for what school is like. And so when, we, when I drop him off, Asher gets a hug. He gets an I love you. But I also, I also remind him of what's expected of him. I say, now Asher, I want you to obey your teachers and I want you to be a good friend. I want him to know that, that even though I'm going to be absent, I'm not going to be with him. I still expect him to live and to operate as we've taught him to do when we're all together. And that is what Jesus is doing in the passage we're looking at this morning, and it's what he's doing actually in the section of John's gospel that this begins. So John 13 to John 16 all takes place in what's called the, the upper room. It's, it's the last supper. It's, it's the last night of Jesus' life. The disciples don't know that yet. They think it's just any other Passover meal, but Jesus knows. He knows that his hour has come, and so Jesus has his disciples gathered around him one last time. He has seen his last sunset. In just hours, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be hung on a cross. It's the end for him and his disciples. And he's getting them ready for what life will be like without him. So for three years, they've done everything with him, right? They've they've awoken with him. They've walked with him. They've eaten their meals with him. They've taken their holidays with him. For three years, following Jesus has been their entire life. And now he's getting them ready for what it's going to be like to follow him after the cross, after he dies, after he rises, after he ascends back to his father in heaven. 
He's getting them ready for Easter and everything after. And so we're going to be spending the next month and a half or so, we're going to get ready for Easter by looking at the words of Jesus to his disciples the night before he died. And in this passage, Jesus tells us that at the heart of what it means to follow him is to be a community of love and love of of a remarkable kind. And so in this passage, we're going to see the posture of love, the pinnacle of love, and the call to love. So first, the posture of love. At this meal, this is the Last Supper. At this meal, Jesus says something that to the disciples was shocking. It was, it was unsettling, it was unexpected, and it was unforgettable. And you can see it in verse 4 of chapter 13. It says that Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter is just, he's appalled by what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 8. He says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. He, I mean, he, he cannot believe what's happening. Why, why is Peter so resistant to this? Because Jesus is doing something that only people at the very bottom of the social ladder would ever be required to do. So Jesus was a rabbi, and he, he occupied a position of honor in his culture. And, and in that culture, a rabbi's disciples were basically seen as his servants, right? The, the disciples would be the ones who would do the shopping. They were the ones who would kind of make housing arrangements when they traveled. They would be his servants. But a disciple would never be required to wash a rabbi's foot, ever. A servant, no servant would ever be required to do that. Only a slave would ever be required to wash a master's foot and feet. And, and if you were a, if you were, a, if your slave was a Jew, a fellow Jew, even them, you couldn't ask to wash your feet. That was only something done by a Gentile slave, someone all the way at the bottom of the social social ladder. They're the only people who could ever have that asked of them. Why? Well, first of all, because it's feet, right? Feet are gross. Nobody likes their feet. They're, they're knobby and gnarly. They're hairy. They're peely. After church, you should just take a stroll through the lobby. There'll be lots of sandals out there. You just look at how horrible everyone's feet are. No, don't do that. You, you'll make them self-conscious about their horrible feet. No, foot washing, it wasn't just humiliating because it was feet. It was what was on the feet, right? Remember that this is a time where everyone wore sandals, and, and all the roads were dirt, basically, right? So, so when it was rainy, feet were muddy. When it was dry, feet were just caked in dust. And it wasn't just dirt, right? Because there are animals just milling around everywhere, just doing their business, right, where you're walking. And so, so caked in the mud, caked in the dirt is animal business, right? So, so to ask someone to take that in their hands, to get filthy themselves in order to get your feet clean, that was a job for only the lowliest slave. What Jesus could never have demanded of Peter, he, he voluntarily did for Peter. Though Jesus was his teacher and Lord, though he was in every respect above the disciples, he put himself below them, way below them, right? When he takes off his outer garments, he wraps a towel around his waist. He was taking on the dress of a slave. He was making himself in the form of a slave. He was utterly humbling himself. There's There is no other account anywhere in Jewish or Roman literature of a master washing the feet of his servants. 
And Jesus did it to make a point. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. He washed their feet to give them an example, to show them the posture of love, to show them what love looks like. He says, here's what it looks like to love. Real love is humble service. Real love gets low. It makes you a servant of the one you love. And this, this picture of love is incredibly penetrating because it strikes at the default setting of the human heart, which is pride. Now, when you think of pride, you might think of just kind of an attitude of smug superiority, just kind of looking around and thinking, I'm better than all these people. But that's not the only way pride shows itself. Pride is deeper than that. Pride is the attitude of our hearts that says, me first. That's pride. Pride is seeing yourself not necessarily as the best person, but as the most important person, as the highest priority to you. It's pride that when your boss assigns the tedious, busy work to you, makes you say in your heart, I shouldn't have to do this. It's pride that when the sink is full of dishes, makes you hold back and and kind of expect your spouse to make the first move, right? It's pride that's angered when you're tired from the day and your children require more of you than you want to give. It's pride that, that makes you outraged when traffic is moving slow and you have somewhere to be. It's pride. It's the lens we look through that makes everything about us. And it's almost hard to imagine that there could ever be any other way to live. It's so natural for us. It's so ingrained. But it's not the way it's always been. In the beginning, in the garden, Adam and Eve didn't say, me first. They said, God first. And because God was first in their hearts, because they weren't the center of their own universe, they could actually love each other. They could say, not me first, but God first and you before me. You come first. What do you need? But how did Satan tempt them? He said, if you eat this fruit, you can be like God. You can be first. You can take his place. You can call your own shots. And that's the way we've been ever since. And if you don't think that's the default mode of the human heart, then you must not be a parent. Because any parent has watched this in their six-month-old and in their two-year-old and in their six-year-old. Every parent knows we're born this way. And if the default setting of the human heart is pride, it means the default way we relate to each other is to use one another instead of serving one another. Me first at work means we're more interested in what people can do for us and our advancement than we are, than what we can do for them and for their advancement. Me first at home means we expect our spouse to constantly serve and affirm us without asking anything of us except what we would actually want to do anyway. Me first in parenting means we want our kids to be low maintenance at home so that we can do the things we want, but also obedient in public so we look good. It's all about us. And when the people around us don't get with the me first program, we get angry at them and resentful. We say, why Why are you making everything so hard on me? We punish them. And Jesus says, the heart of my followers is not going to be me first. You're not going to use one another. You're going to humbly serve one another. Now we know from Luke's account of the Last Supper that after the meal, the disciples got into an argument And what they were arguing about was who was the greatest. 
This is the night before Jesus is dying, and they're squabbling about who's the greatest disciple. They think even following Jesus is kind of a race to the top, which is why it's so powerful that Jesus, Jesus rises, takes off his outer garment, dresses as a slave, gets down on the floor, washes their feet, and says, this isn't a race to the top, guys. This is the finish line. We race to the bottom. We race to serve. Don't constantly think about what everyone else can do for you. Look at them. Really look at them and see what they need and what you can do for them. I got home from work on Friday. I've been thinking about this passage all day. And Kim told me that someone had called her during the day and said, I just want to come over and I want to wash your floors and I want to clean your bathrooms. Because she knew that Kim has an infant. It's hard for her to do those things. And I thought, that's it. That's it right there. Love is humble service. That's its posture. But that's not all the foot washing teaches us because it's also pointing to something greater. So let's look secondly at the pinnacle of love. Now this, this image of Jesus down on the floor washing his disciples' feet, that would have been powerful no matter where it fell in the timeline of his life. But he deliberately did it at this point, the night before his death, so that we wouldn't miss that it's pointing to something even greater. And John doesn't want us to miss it either, so he keeps, he keeps intruding kind of into the story with reminders of the big story that's happening. You can even look just at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to his Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He, he puts this in this, this huge scale. Now, so Jesus is aware that he is at the turning point of a much larger story, right? The whole gospel of John has been leading up to something that Jesus calls over and over, my hour, the hour. My community group has been reading through John's gospel, and we just noticed this again and again. At, at the wedding in Cana, right, where, where water, Jesus turned the water into wine, his mom had come to him and said, they're out of wine. And what Jesus says to her is, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Later, as his ministry gets more controversial, this is what John tells us. So they were seeking to arrest him, but nobody laid an, a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus is aware that his whole life is leading up to something. It's leading up to the hour, his hour. And now he knows it's come. He knows that what he has come to accomplish, what God sent him to do, he's about to do right now. So what is it? There's something, Jesus says something fascinating in verse 31. Take a look at verse 31. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus is saying, what's happening right now is revealing my glory and the glory of God more than anything I've ever done, more than turning water into wine, more than multiplying loaves and fish, more than healing a man born blind, more than raising a man from the dead. Now, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And what's happening? What, what's happening that makes him say, now this is the big deal? He's being betrayed, right? In any other story, the betrayal is what derails the mission. In any other story, the betrayal is the tragedy. The betrayal is what keeps you from doing the thing that you were supposed to do. But with Jesus, the betrayal is his hour. Look back at verse 18. He said, 
I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. He's saying this, what's happening now? What's happening right now? This, Judas betraying me. This, me being arrested. This is fulfilling scripture. This has always been the plan. This is what I came to do. The ultimate act of Jesus' life was to submit himself to betrayal and death, right? Jesus, Jesus knows who's going to betray him. John tells us that several times in this passage. And Jesus never tries to argue him out of it. He never pulls Judas aside and said, I know what you're thinking of doing. Would you, would you just please remember this and this and this? He never does that. What does he say to him, actually, in verse 27? Jesus said to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. Hurry it up. Let's, let's get a move on. Let's go where we're going with this. He's, he's not trying to get out of anything. He knows this is why he came. He knows that he's going to die the next day, to die in the place of his people, to take the punishment we deserve for our sin and our pride. That's what's going to reveal his glory more than any miracle because that will show the unimaginable greatness of his love for us coming from heaven, voluntarily going to the cross, choosing it for us. The cross is the pinnacle of love, and that's what the foot washing is ultimately about. That's why Jesus says, look at verse 7, What I'm doing now you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. He says, you're not going to understand what I'm doing right now until you've seen the cross. And once you see the cross, this will all make sense. Because here, This is a little abstract. I want you to follow me. What's the shape of the foot washing, right? Jesus goes from high to low to high. He's a rabbi. He has this cloak around him. He has this place of honor at the table. And he, he removes it. He strips himself of his honor. He puts aside his dignity. He makes himself a servant. He takes on the form of a slave. He takes the disciples' filth upon him in order to make them clean. And then he returns to his place of honor. Right? What does that remind you of? What is that shape? The foot washing is a picture of the whole mission of Jesus. He came from God. He became a servant. He did the work of cleansing his people, and he returned to his place of honor. Listen to how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's the same shape, isn't it? The foot washing is the shape of the whole of Jesus' life, from high to low to high. All for us. The foot washing is a picture of the cross, and Peter doesn't see it. Right? Look, look at the exchange that, that Peter and Jesus have. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. And you are clean. What's going on there? Peter's, Peter's thinking about the foot washing. He's saying, This is inappropriate. This is totally backwards. You shouldn't be washing my feet. I should be washing yours. You're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, this is a picture of the cleansing I have come to accomplish for your heart. 
If you don't, if you don't get clean on the inside, if you're not washed clean from your sin, you have no share in me. You, you can't be mine if I don't wash you. And Peter, he still doesn't get it. He said, well, if the foot washing is that good, then let's do the hands and the head. And Jesus said, Peter, I'm talking about the cleansing I've come to do of your sin. I've come to take away your sin. But he says to Peter, but Peter, you've trusted me. You've followed me. You're already clean. Okay, there's, this, there's a, something that comes up in the, in the first verse of this, chapter 13, verse 1. It says that this is the Passover feast, right? Do you know why Jesus, why God planned for Jesus to die at the Passover? Because Jesus, John says, John the Baptist in chapter 1 says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? The Passover remembered the time when God's people were in slavery and there was this plague, the death of the firstborn. The firstborn son in every family would die, but God said, if you sacrifice a spotless lamb, your sons will go free. Right? The lamb will take their place. The lamb will take away the wrath. And John says, Jesus is the lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. He takes away our sin by dying in our place. That's the, what the foot washing points to. That's the cleansing Jesus says we need. The ultimate expression of Jesus' love is not that he went from the table to the floor to wash feet. It's that he came from heaven to the cross to cleanse hearts. Do you know that we are as filthy inwardly, spiritually, as the disciples' feet? Worse even, we are every one of us corrupted and polluted by pride, by envy, by greed, by lust. We know, you know, you know that you're not what you're supposed to be. We've all been stained by every moment of selfish anger, every word spoken to tear down, every time we've used people instead of serving them. And Jesus says, I have come to make people clean. I've come to wash sins away with my blood, through my death. You've all made yourselves first in your hearts. You've put yourselves in the place of God, but I am God come to put myself in your place. To take the death you deserve, to go to the cross you deserve, to die for you so you can share my life. You can never clean yourself, so come to me. Put your trust in me. Have you been washed by him? Do you know that you are clean and righteous in his sight? Not everyone is, right? He says, not all of you are clean. Judas wasn't. He had followed Jesus. He had heard his teaching. He had seen his miracles. He had gone out preaching and casting out demons, but he had never been washed clean. He had never believed. He, he was following in the group of disciples, but he never became a Christian. Have you Have you been washed clean through the death of Jesus? You'll never be free from pride until you have. When you know it's only, I mean, pride is, it's so rooted in our hearts, right? It's so deep. It's so instinctive. We can't just stop it. That's not going to work. We need something to drive it out. And the only thing that can drive it out is knowing the love of Jesus, knowing this love that came from heaven for you that took your place And when you begin to experience that love, it can dislodge the pride from your heart. The more you know his love and beauty, the more you love him in return, the more you'll be able to say, no, it's not me first, it's God first. And because God is first, because I'm not the center of my own universe, I can say, no, you before me, 
I can serve. I can make someone else more important than myself. You'll be able to treat your coworkers as people instead of resources for your own success. You'll be able to serve your spouse even when you, you feel like you're already doing maybe more than your share of the housework. You won't need your children's perfect obedience in public because your treasure is somewhere else. Instead of using them, you can serve them. Jesus wanted to shape his disciples into a community of love. And he didn't just say, you're proud, knock it off, right? He showed them his love. He said, see how I have served you. See my love, receive my love, and now show it to one another, which is finally the call to love. Now now that we know the full extent of his love, verses 34 to 35 almost take your breath away. Look there. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. How did, how did he love us? To death, right? He laid down his life for us and he calls us to lay down our lives for one another. For our brothers and sisters, for the other people in this room. In all of our interactions together, in our, in our being together on Sunday morning, in our being together at community group, just in our running into each other during the week, even when we're apart from one another, just thinking of one another, Jesus calls us to, to find ways to put the good of other people ahead of our own, to make them first, to die little deaths so other people can experience just a little bit more life. And we do this in the little things. So when we see each other in the grocery store, we have to die to our desire, at least my desire, to get in and get out and get on with life, right? We have to stop the cart and make eye contact and say to them, sincerely, how are you? And maybe they're fine and maybe you just move on, but maybe what they really need is someone who cares enough to ask. Or when we're praying, we die to our instincts to make prayer all about ourselves and our needs, and we actually think about the people in our lives who need God to work for them. On Sunday mornings, we die to our desire to sleep in or just have one quiet morning at home and we get some coffee and we get out of the house and we get here together. And when we're gathered here, we die to our desire to just talk to the people who are easy for us, the people who are low maintenance, the people that are like us. And we look for the people who really need someone to listen and to encourage them. We die to our pride. We get out of the center of our lives. We make ourselves servants of the people around us. And those are the little ways. But we don't stop there. We die to our desire to be liked by everybody, and sometimes we speak hard truths to people who are getting off the path. We die to our desire to just relax whenever we're not working, and we go visit people who are sick and lonely. We die to our desire to buy everything we want, and instead we give our resources to make sure everyone has what they need, right? In the early church, people, you can read about this in Acts 2, people were selling their land. They were selling their inheritance. They were taking the money and giving to make sure that there were no poor among them in the church. And their love was sacrificial. It was cross-shaped. And that community changed the world. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The world will see Jesus in us to the degree that they see a kind of love among us that exists nowhere else. And if Christianity is starting to seem more and more irrelevant. If people are thinking more and more, Christianity, that's old, that's outdated, that has nothing to say to us now, could it be that the reason why that attitude is growing is because when they look at us, 
They don't see in us what Jesus said would show were his disciples. Sacrificial love. Humble service. God's people should be the one community where nobody says, me first. Where everything is, you before me. What can I do for you? What if, what if our great ambition in life didn't revolve around career, didn't revolve around an account balance, didn't revolve around a vision for the success of our children? What, what if for us, our great ambition was to become a community of Christ-like love? What if people weren't just intrusions into your to-do list, things that kind of get you off the track of getting done what you really want to get done? What, what if people were the to-do list? What if that's what your life was about, showing this kind of love to one another? I know I'm not there yet. I'm a proud person. It comes out in the way I only want to preach perfect sermons. It comes out in the look I give Kim when she asks me to change the baby's diaper. It came out yesterday in the frozen food section of Foster's with my children. I know I'm not a perfect person. I'm proud, but I don't want to stay like this. I want to change. Don't you? How can we begin Jesus says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. First we have to know, then we have to do. First we have to see what the disciples saw, just the the incredible love of Jesus who made himself a servant to make us clean. We have to see him getting low for us, washing feet and going to the cross. We have to look into his love and meditate on his love. But then we have to do. We have to get started. We have to seek each day, to die a little for someone else, to make ourselves last, to go low. And day by day, he'll change us. Day by day, we'll grow, and people will see Jesus in us, and they'll be drawn to him, and he will be glorified. Let's pray. Our Father, we know, we know that we can't become this, unless you do it. We can't become people of love. We can't become a community of love unless you do it in us. And so I pray that you would help us to so deeply know your love. The love that sent Jesus to the cross, the love that made us clean when we didn't deserve anything, the love that pursued us, the love that knew us, the love that works in us now. I I pray that you would help us to know the depth of your love, the greatness of your love, and be so shaped by it that we can then extend it to each other, that, that we're no longer enthralled with ourselves, no longer centered on ourselves, but that you are the center. And because you are the center, we're so eager to show your love to everyone around us. Father, we, we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to work. And I pray that you would do that, that you would shape us, and that you would make yourself known through our love. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.